You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 33, we certainly worship a great God um, as we've been able to sing about this morning. Um, you know, thinking back on where we were studying last week in Genesis chapter 32, uh, just the idea, you know, our summary sentence from last week, or the title for the sermon last week, the one for us is greater than those against us. Um, and so we certainly uh, able to sing to a God this morning who is greater than any of the uh, the burdens or the concerns that we've already confessed this morning as points of prayer, um, that God is uh, greater than any disease that we can encounter. Uh, he's greater than any um, company or boss that may take a job away from us. He's, he's greater than any womb that may not be functioning properly. Right, The God that we serve is greater than all of the, the things that are seemingly against us in our life right now. Uh, we said last week, while believers will oftentimes face uncertainty and danger, we take comfort in knowing that the God who is for us offers the greatest protection and provision possible. Um, and that ought to be the encouragement to us this morning. We saw last week that uh, Jacob gets a glimpse of angelic forces that are with him as he goes up against that uncertain situation with Esau, right? And we said that um, it'd be nice if we could all have a, a glimpse and a picture of that when we're going through times of uncertainty and danger, to be able to see the angelic forces that go before us and offer the protection and provision. I offered the encouragement to you last week that it, it might not help all that much because Jacob continues to struggle with doubt and lack of faith. And so certainly don't look at Jacob's situation and say, well, um, I'm at a disadvantage because I don't get to see the angelic forces that are with me. Um, the, the, the norm is that we're called to trust in those things, whether we see them or don't, uh, that God has made provisions for us. And the people that we interact with in these situations have got to see that type of level of trust in us. Okay, so whether we're talking about believers or unbelievers, um, you know, some of the prayer requests focused on people that aren't believers or may not be believers. And, and so maybe you can't extend the same type of comfort to them as you can a believer, right? Because they don't have God's guarantee that everything works out for their good. They're not part of God's family. But you can certainly extend to them the hope that you possess and use that as an invitation uh, into the gospel and why they need Christ as their savior. Here's the hope that I have is that God is working all things for good for me. You don't have that hope. And so as you face this uncertainty and danger, you don't proceed with angelic forces on your side like I do. Um, it's a huge advantage to us as believers, right? We're forgiven of our sins, certainly. We have a, a hope for eternity with Christ, certainly. But on a day-to-day basis, we know every single day that we wake up, whatever events we encounter that day are meant for our good because of God's active presence in our life. You can't buy that, right? Like You can't purchase that. The cost of that would be exorbitant if you could sell that type of comfort and that type of security. To purchase around-the-clock angelic forces, a God of the universe who is constantly working for your good, you can't afford that overtime right? And we have that freely given to us as believers. And that's the hope that was, was seen from last week's passage is that Jacob is facing uncertainty and danger. And God gives him a glimpse and says, there's really nothing to be scared of. There's nothing to be concerned about because I go forward with you. We said last week, believers can be comforted by the invisible presence of God. 
How do we maintain that? We said believers can be comforted by remembering the promises of God. We looked at Jacob's prayer and how he's constantly highlighting the things that God has already told him. And so we said that he's using it essentially as a sermon to himself. He's preaching to himself. I don't have anything to be scared of. Why? Because God has made promises to me and I can cling to those promises right now, even though I'm cowering in fear about confronting my brother. We said believers can be comforted by the ongoing sanctifying work of God, that God comes to Jacob and initiates a character change with him. During that wrestling match, the goal is to see Jacob changed. He gets a new name, Israel, uh, at the conclusion of that bout. The application for us last week was remember God is always working around us. Even when we don't see the angelic forces, even when we don't see him actively around us, we know from scripture that they are always there that God is always there working for our good. We should be comforted by that today. Uh, We need to preach the promises of God to ourselves because if I'm the only one telling you that, you're gonna forget by Thursday. You're gonna lose sight of that by Thursday. You're gonna lose sight of the spiritual. You're gonna lose sight of the invisible when you're facing real physical problems. And if I'm the only one preaching that to you, you will forget by Thursday, maybe sooner for others. You have got to be preaching those promises to yourself. That's why being in the word regularly yourself is so crucial because I can't be with you 24-7 to preach those promises to you, right? You can't have sermons plugged up to your ear 24-7. You've got to ingrain those promises to yourself, memorizing scripture, right? You've got to get into the habit to where you're prayerfully considering the promises of God and you know them by name. You've committed those things to your heart so that when you face uncertainty on Thursday and Friday before we get together again on Sunday, those promises are ready to be preached from you to yourself, okay? Um, Jacob moves forward here. Uh, He comes out of that interaction with God um, and prepares to meet his brother Esau. So we turn our attention now to Genesis chapter 33. And in verse one, it says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Remember we said Esau may have been confused as to why uh, Jacob was coming um, and and may have brought the 400 men because he didn't know if Jacob was hostile towards him. Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. 
But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Our summary sentence for today, we're going to look extensively at the reconciliation that happens here between Jacob and Esau, drawing from it the implications that we have as believers, the responsibility that we have to reconcile broken relationships in our life. Our summary sentence, believers having been reconciled to God are to pursue reconciliation with others as conflicts arise, demonstrating the same forgiveness and restoration they have enjoyed themselves. All right, so believers, because we've been reconciled to God, because we've experienced uh, forgiveness, because we've experienced restoration, we have a responsibility to pursue that type of uh, relationship with others as conflicts arise. So as things spring up in our life, friendships run sour because of circumstances, uh, one individual does something to the other, we pursue reconciliation Why? We are motivated because of the same forgiveness and restoration we've already experienced in our relationship with God. God repeatedly in the New Testament talks about because he's forgiven us, we have a responsibility to forgive others. Right? He tells that in the parable, uh, the servant who owes the exorbitant amount to his master and he's forgiven and then he goes and makes demands upon the individual that owes him money. It's far less amount, right? But he, he holds to the letter and says, no, you will do this or else you'll be punished for it. And the, the, the picture there is that he owed so much more to his master and it was, it was wiped clear. And yet he, he's going to demand restitution for something far less serious. And the picture is that we've been forgiven uh, of eternal uh, consequences for our sin, right? Our sin demands we be separated from God for eternity. God wipes that clear for us to then turn around and demand things uh, without extending forgiveness uh, is completely contrary to what we've learned from our relationship with God. So believers having been reconciled to God are to pursue reconciliation with others as conflicts arise, demonstrating the same forgiveness and restoration they have enjoyed themselves. For our kids, because God forgives us, we are called to forgive others. Because God forgives us, we are called to forgive others. So that picture that we see uh, from uh, Sunday school stories, from our parents at home, uh, our kids have to embrace this understanding that that they forgive when they've been wronged. You forgive when you've been wronged because God has extended far greater forgiveness to us when we wronged him. That, that's the picture we're going to see as we unpack that sentence together today in our sermon. In my notes, I put um, reconciliation is necessary if we are going to move forward and be blameless in our walk before God. What do I mean by that? I told you last week, Jacob doesn't have to go this route. He doesn't have to go where his path intersects with Esau. He doesn't have to go this route. He seemingly chooses to do so because to really move forward in his spiritual walk, he's got to reconcile with Esau. He has wronged Esau. He took things and manipulated things in a way that was not part of God's uh, command or instruction to him. He's got to fix it. 
And, and, and he's not gonna be where he needs to be until he does everything that he can to fix it. Now, certainly reconciliation involves two individuals cooperating for it to really end well. But we, to be where we're supposed to be spiritually, we cannot sit blameless if there are relationships where conflict exists with us and we haven't done our part to fix it. We, we can't move forward spiritually and be where we're supposed to be. And we're gonna see from scripture why we can't do that, okay? Um, two quick verses to highlight that, that uh, reinforce this. Matthew chapter six, verses 14 and 15. Matthew chapter six, verses 14 and 15 say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is right after the Lord's prayer, talking about us coming to God for forgiveness and also extending forgiveness to those that owe us. It's a picture that we can't really expect God to forgive us if we're gonna withhold that same type of treatment to others who wrong us, Matthew 6, 14 through 15. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter five, why is this so important? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 16, it's why we're still here on this earth. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Right? So, so Christ does everything necessary to fix what's wrong. And, and everything went wrong in the Garden of Eden back at our first sermon uh, first sermon series on Genesis, right? We see Adam and Eve break fellowship with God. And, and so the whole story unfolding after that is God fixing that, okay? Christ does everything to reconcile us to himself. And then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, God was reconcil- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is absolutely no way we can embrace a ministry of reconciliation, meaning where we go and share a gospel message of how people can get things fixed with God if we are not a regular example of forgiveness in our relationships, right? We, we might as well just mute ourselves when we come to trying to share the gospel with somebody at work if they've seen us time and time again not forgive coworkers, not forgive bosses, not pursue reconciliation, and then to try to come and say, hey, I'm an expert on, on the ultimate reconciliation. Let me tell you about how to be reconciled to God. Like we might as well just stop talking if we're not demonstrating forgiveness to other people. The ministry of reconciliation only has power if they're seeing that new creation in us, right? As they, as they hear the gospel, if we are detracting from the gospel by being the most unforgiving people they've ever encountered, what does that potentially say about our God, right? God is who he is and the gospel is powerful because the gospel is powerful, but people come to a, uh, a misunderstanding if we're clouding their view. If I'm trying to explain God's unconditional forgiveness and his ongoing forgiveness, and I'm not that type of person, and I'm so far from it, there's a lack of confidence in my God if I'm the only one exposing them to my God. 
the ministry of reconciliation. We have that as believers. Christ has reconciled us to him and now called us to help others see as we proclaim the gospel and the Holy Spirit does its uh, supernatural work in the lives of others for them to see their need to be reconciled to God as well. And we reinforce that message by showing forgiveness and demonstrating reconciliation in our earthly relationships. Okay, so Matthew 6, 14 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. In your notes, number one, Christ appeases God for the believer. I want us to see some gospel implications from this passage. Um, I want us to see Christ in Genesis chapter 33, and I want us to see a lot of application for us. Okay, so we're going to highlight what happens between Jacob and Esau. But one thing that I kept coming back to over and over in my studies is that Jacob is so concerned about how to appease Esau. He knows Esau is angry. He realizes that Esau is very right to be angry. And he's so concerned about how to pacify him. How do I come into the face of Esau and gain acceptance? And so he's, he's conjuring up the best presentation possible, right? Let me give the best animals. Let me space them out for, uh, for um, effect so that they're going to come to him in stages and try to overwhelm him to where he'll be pacified and his anger will be appeased. And it's only then will I be able to be confident in his presence. What's, what's sad is that leading up to that interaction, there's no assurance for Jacob. God's trying to give it to him, right? God has an encounter with Jacob. He shows him angels that are going before him as well. He's made promises to him that this interaction has to go well, right? Like these children that that are coming along behind Jacob have to go on for the covenant to continue. He's got all that truth, but there's still this Esau, man, he hates me and he could really kill me. He even staggers his family by value so that if something does go wrong, hopefully Rachel and Joseph can get out before it makes its way back to the end of the line. He's got all this assurance that it's going to work out fine, but he won't know for sure until he gets there. And that's the message of just about every other religion. You won't know until you actually get there. And so you spend as long as God gives you on this earth basically building your greatest presentation possible, right? I'm going to try to do as much good so that when I stand before God one day, he will be appeased and will be satisfied and will not be angry because here's what I have to offer him. And the gospel says you don't have to wait until you get there. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's how Christians can live in faith and hope and trust is that I don't have to wait until the end to see if I gain acceptance. The gospel says I have acceptance now because Christ has already entered into the presence of his father. He was raised to life three days, guaranteeing that his sacrifice was accepted. And he sits at the right hand of his father today. I don't have to wonder if I'm gonna be accepted, right? When I get to heaven and I'm standing before God, the great presentation is his son. His son has done everything that I need. So I don't have to usher in my my pitiful good works and say, Hey, you know what? I pastored a church and, and, I, and I worked in ministry at a school and, and I gave time away from my family to coach a football team and to invest in the lives of some middle schoolers. Surely that makes up for me being a prideful person that, that, uh, that gossips and slanders people. Surely that makes up for, for a lifetime of sins. 
That's not how, that's not how Christianity works. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel says I can be accepted today and I can live in victory until Christ calls me home. And it can be a glorious reunion and not one that I sit on my deathbed saying, I hope I've done enough. I hope there's enough animals that will appease Esau's anger. That's where Jacob was living. And that's contrary to what we have with the gospel. Christ appeases God for the believer, for our kids. Because of Jesus, God is no longer angry with Christians. That's what propitiation means. You see that big word a lot of times in the New Testament about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. It's the same word in the Old Testament um, for, the, for the mercy seat that's on the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the same word. It's this idea of appeasement. It's the idea that God is satisfied with the payment for the sin. And we, we, we know from Hebrews that the, the priest had to keep offering animal sacrifices over and over and over because God couldn't be appeased and satisfied with animal sacrifices. And it's only until Jesus comes and Hebrews testifies to it chapter after chapter that he's the better everything and that ultimately he brings full satisfaction to God's wrath and anger. Romans 3 talks about it, right? Romans 3 says that God passed over the sins of old so that he could bring divine punishment upon Jesus, so that he could be fully satisfied with those that put their faith and trust in Jesus experiencing that satisfaction. Christ appeases God for the believer. Unlike Jacob, we can approach God knowing that we are accepted. Jacob's hope is that Esau will accept him based on his sacrifice. Look at his his mentality and his fear. Back in chapter 32, verse 20 given instructions to his people that are going to take the animals. <clears throat> it says, For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. It's like 50-50. He's like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And again, that's the message of every other religion. I can't imagine why anybody would abandon Christianity for a works-based mentality, and it happens all the time. But to embrace that mentality is to say, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to take a chance that what I have to offer will appease him on the day of judgment. And until that day, I live in, I live in uncertainty. Jacob's living in uncertainty. I imagine there's a, a side of him that doesn't want that next morning to come when he actually has to see Esau. But there's also, I think, a mentality where he's like, I wish it would just hurry up and get here so I know. So I know whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be bad, okay? Um, in chapter 33, verse eight, that's the reason that he gives him for why he sent all the animals. He says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Believers are assured that God has already accepted Christ's sacrifice. I talked to you about Romans chapter three, uh, verses 24 and 25, where God passed over sin so that he could bring judgment upon Jesus. Let's look at a couple of those passages, or one of those passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, says, And by that we will have, uh, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool 
for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. First John chapter 4. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. He sent his son to be the appeasement for our sins. And some of us have lived so long in the gospel and we've lived so long free from God's wrath that we've lost the fear of what that would look like to not be under God's appeasement any longer. Right? Some of us were saved at such an early age and we, and we felt the pressure, we, we recognized our sin, we recognized the judgment that we deserved and, and we got saved and we put our faith and trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit's been living inside of us ever since and, and we've been growing in our faith and some of us have forgotten how terrifying it would be to come here and gather to worship a God and to know that the week before us would potentially shape whether or not our afterlife was positive or not. Some of us don't have any, any, any connection with that. We've lived so long in, in God's grace, and that's a great thing, like not to, not to diminish getting saved at an early age, but we read these passages and they don't, they, don't, they don't scream the joy that I think we should feel from them. Is that we don't have to worry about our screw-ups this week. We don't have to worry and wonder if I face God this week, is he gonna be satisfied with my life or not? Because the answer is no, he's not gonna be satisfied with your life. You, don't, you really don't have to wait until then. If you're banking on your life, the guarantee is that it will not appease him. Romans testifies that it will not appease him. We don't have to wonder because Christ came and lived and he died and his life started and ended here on this earth and it was perfect. And it was submitted to God on our behalf and it appeases his anger towards our sin. His blood was shed for our forgiveness and his perfection is applied to us. The righteous requirements of the law have been met and we don't have to fear whether God accepts us or not. I'd encourage you to think on that and to meditate on that some this week to to really uh, see the joy that comes from these verses. The work of Christ stands as our grounds for acceptance. I mean, compare the two. Your best efforts in your life mixed with all the mess ups versus Christ and his 33 years of perfection. Like one's clearly better than the other if it comes to who's, who's, who's going to be accepted before God. The work of Christ stands. Jacob's wondering, do I have enough animals to buy the appeasement? Do I have enough that I can offer him to gain his forgiveness? We're spiritually bankrupt when it comes to that mentality before God. And Jesus comes and fills the bank account so that our debt can be paid. Number two, so unlike Jacob, we can approach God confidently knowing we're accepted. Number two, like Esau, God demonstrates unmerited favor towards his enemies. Jacob is is terrified of Esau and he even relates the idea that uh, he fears the face of Esau much like he feared the face of God. He, He relates the two encounters and says, seeing you is like seeing God. I'm that terrified of you. I'm that terrified of being in your presence. And he says, I found favor in the sight of both. I found favor in the sight of both. Like Esau, God demonstrates unmerited favor towards his enemies. We're gonna come back to this. It's hard for me to read this chapter and not think that Esau is is just getting the raw end of the deal here. 
I mean, we know in the New Testament he's counted unholy and sexually immoral. And, and you read this chapter and you're like, Esau is the man here. Like, like he has no reason to forgive Jacob. One, he's not a believer. So, so he has no spiritual working in his life that would lend himself to forgive here. Um, and, and yet he's the one running and embracing his brother and, and, and kissing on him and, and hey, introduce me to your family. Like I've missed you guys. And then he's the one that says, hey, come back with me. And, 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 and no, you don't want to come back with me. Okay. Let me leave you some bodyguards that'll help protect you as you come to catch up with me. And I mean, you read about Esau here and you're like, what a great guy. What a great guy. He extends this unmerited favor towards Jacob and, and in, in, in a, in a moment, and like I said, according to the rest of Scripture, in a brief moment here, he's exhibiting the characteristics of God in his interaction with Jacob. Now, again, the rest of Scripture indicates to us that, that he's not God-like, right? And that he's not a believer and that he's not a, a covenant claimer and, and he wants nothing to do with the things of God. We have no idea what he's been doing for 20 years. We know a lot about Jacob went off with Laban and got married and had kids. And we have no idea what Esau's been doing. Probably not much good. But in a brief moment here, in a brief moment, he shows us a picture of what we experience with God. An unmerited favor, right? It's, it's like the prodigal son coming home, right? The prodigal son come home and says, at least count me as a servant and pay me a little bit of money so I don't eat with the pigs. Like I'm not expecting much, just pay me what you pay everybody else kind of thing. And, and dad runs out and is hugging him and embracing him and throw him a party and, the Jews are angry about it, right? The Jews think like they got ripped off because there's forgiveness being extended. Forgiveness being extended. And, and this is the picture here. Jacob comes back groveling and bowing and offering whatever restitution he can. And Esau's not even concerned about it, right? Like Esau's not standing there checking off. Okay, how many cows did you say? How many sheep did you say? I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be enough. Like you really, you took a lot from me. No, like he's not even thinking about it. He's just, he's just so excited to see him. He's so excited to see him. And that's the picture that we have with, with God as we come to him for salvation. There's this warm, loving embrace as the enemy has come home. The enemy has come home, right? God's been, God's been welcoming people back since the Garden of Eden happened. And every single one of them, there's angels rejoicing in heaven when they come home, when they come back. That's the picture that we get briefly again in the way that Esau interacts with Jacob. Number two, human reconciliation is always a work of God. Human reconciliation is always a work of God. For our kids, God helps us forgive others. Human reconciliation is always a work of God. The peace between Jacob and Esau is ultimately a work of God. Okay, so human reconciliation is always a work of God. For our kids, God helps us forgive others. The peace between Jacob and Esau is ultimately a work of God. Don't miss the supernatural work in this chapter when you compare it to 32 and you see angels, right? Like you see 32 and you're like, wow, God's at work. There's angels present. And then you read 33 and there's no angels. It's just two guys getting things right. And it would be easy to minimize chapter 33 and say, yeah, God was very active a couple of chapters back, right? He comes to Laban in a dream and, and says, you better not go near Jacob. Don't do anything mean or nice to convince him to come home. 
right? Like, like this supernatural dream. And it's like, oh, wow, like that'd be crazy to have a supernatural dream where God gives you instruction. Then you got Jacob, eyes open, and there's an army of angels before him. You're like, wow, like God's really showing up and God's doing things. And then chapter 33, two brothers get back together and, and make things right. It'd be easy to say, supernatural, supernatural, natural. But I think God is completely at work in this situation right here, or it doesn't happen. How do I know that? First of all, Jacob prays for God's protection, right? Back in chapter 32, verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. I am guilty as anyone of praying for things and then things happening just like I prayed for them to happen and me just saying, eh, that's kind of natural. Like so often we fail to realize that something just supernatural happened there. I prayed for something and God moved and worked, right? Jacob prays, deliver me from Esau. And what happens in 33? God delivers him from Esau. There's no lack of supernatural here in this chapter. Chapter 33, verse 4. Well, let's back up to um, 2741. The last time we heard from Esau. Chapter 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's the last we've heard from this guy. And then we flip over to chapter 33, verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is supernatural God working on this guy's heart because there's no reason for this to happen. There's no reason for this to happen. Yeah, it's been 20 years, but dad's still alive. So really the, the, the buffer there for why I haven't killed you yet is that our dad hasn't died as soon as we thought. And God, God, I believe, completely turns Esau's heart to show favor towards, um, to show favor towards Jacob here. Proverbs 21.1 says this, that God turns the hearts of kings, that God has the ability to turn individuals to do exactly what he wants them to do. And while God does not come and warn Esau like Laban that we know of, right? Like Esau doesn't get this supernatural dream that says, you better be nice to Jacob when he shows up tomorrow or I'm gonna get you. He doesn't get that. But it's no less supernatural for God to have changed Esau's heart for him to act the way that he needs to without the vision. Because I think that's exactly what happens here. You have an, an unbeliever acting like a believer here. That's God changing his heart and molding him to move in the direction that he wants him to move to show favor towards Jacob. And this is no less impressive. All right, we read about the vision and we're like, wow, God shows up and stops Laban. Esau, eh, Esau just decided to like Jacob. Now this is God. God is absolutely working in this situation and he is absolutely directing Esau for his purposes. God silences Laban. Laban's not appeased by Jacob, right? Like Laban doesn't embrace him and say, hey, it's okay. Like we're family. He doesn't leave saying, hey, come see me sometime, right? There's a truth set up that says, don't ever come near me. Like I don't trust you. So God silences Laban. God appeases Esau. God appeases Esau. All right, number three, 
Believers take responsibility for reconciliation. Believers take responsibility for reconciliation. For our kids, it's our job to make things right with our friends. It's our job to make things right. And I'm gonna argue that it's our job in every single case to take the initiative to reconcile. It's our job as believers in every single case to take the initiative to reconcile. First point, perceived outcomes should not determine our pursuit of reconciliation. It's not uncommon for me to sit with individuals and talk about the need for reconciliation and the justification for why it's not being pursued is because of the perceived reaction by the other party. It's not going to go well. Like if I call them up and try to sit down and talk with them, it's going to turn into a big fight. They're not going to react well to this. Jacob is marching towards his brother, believing there's a good chance he may try to kill him, but also realizing reconciliation has to happen. And the exact opposite of what he feared, I mean, the exact extreme opposite of what he feared is actually what happens. Imagine if if Jacob said, you know what? We're going to go this way and we're going to try to avoid Esau until he dies because reconciliation is just not possible. It's just not possible. He's too angry at me. He's, he's rightfully angry at me. He's not going to see my side of it that God promised those blessings to me anyways. That's why I took him. We're just going to try to stay clear of Esau. Now he marches towards him, realizing this may be a complete disaster, but reconciliation has to happen. We don't have the right to sit back and say, the outcome won't be good So I'm just going to keep silent, try to avoid that person, and not pursue reconciliation. We we don't have that right. We don't have that right. Perceived outcomes should not determine whether we do it or not. So it's not that, oh, I think this will go well, so I'm going to pursue reconciliation either. We do it because it's right, regardless of how we think it might turn out. We should not assume the reactions of others, allowing it sometimes to prevent us from doing what is right. Number two, believers have the responsibility to initiate in all known cases. Believers are called to pursue reconciliation when they are at fault. When you're at fault, it's your job to reconcile. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23 and 24. So if you were offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you know somebody has something against you, whether it's justified or not, right? Jacob knows that Esau has something against him and it's justified. We've all had cases though where we know that somebody is mad at us or frustrated with us or angry at us and we say, well, that's not even justified. If we know that somebody has a fault against us, it's our responsibility to go and make it right. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you know that your brother has a fault against you, doesn't say if you know that your brother has a justified fault against you, doesn't say if you've done something to your brother and it's caused a fault between you and him, go and make it right. It's, if you know that your brother has a fault against you, then you need to go and reconcile and make that right. Matthew eighteen fifteen. 
Believers are called to pursue reconciliation when others are at fault. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's obviously easy to know when somebody, when, when somebody has done something against us. We're called to fix that. We're called to reconcile that. On the other side, it's not always known by us when somebody has something against us. But when it becomes known, then it becomes our responsibility to go and fix it. I think some people have grown tired of coming to me and having conversations with me because I have people that come to me and say, hey, I think so-and-so is frustrated with you about this. Like it might be at work. Like, hey, I think this teacher, like I, don't, I think they might be mad at you about this. And my immediate reaction is, oh, great, I'm gonna go talk to them. No, 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 don't go, don't go talk to them. They'll know I told you. Well, see, what you've done is you've obligated me to go talk to this person because now I know that this person has a fault against me And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm the type of person, personality-wise, I can't stand knowing that somebody might not be happy with me. I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. There's been times when people in our church have texted me and said, hey, can we get together sometimes next week? And I can perceive that it's because there's something not right. I drop everything and meet them right then. And I press it. I'm like, no, we're not waiting until next week. I'm not going to think about this till next week. If I know there's something not right between us, we're going to meet right now. And if not right now, first thing tomorrow morning. Why? Because this passage tells me I can't really move forward until it's fixed. And if I know that there is a fault, whether it's justified or not, I've got to fix it with you. I've got to fix it with you. And I've got to pursue reconciliation, whether you, whether that person wants to or not, right? Like if somebody's coming and telling me, it's not for me to say, well, I'm going to sit here and see if they come to me or not. No, like I'm to be the initiator every time. If the person faults me, I'm supposed to go to them and tell them. If I find out that I've done something to somebody else and I'm not aware of it, I'm supposed to go to them and fix it and pursue reconciliation. And when we find out about these cases where we were like, whoa, like I didn't even know that I did that. There's two improper responses. One is to get defensive about it and say, well, that's ridiculous for that person to be mad at me. And then all of a sudden, like, I didn't know about this, but now I'm glad I know about it because I'm angry about it. That this person would have the gall to tell you that they're mad about this and it's completely unjustified the other improper response is just dismiss it and say well that's silly they'll get over it and that happens a lot of times too where we're just like no i'm not even going to go approach that that's not even worth my time that's so silly it's obviously big enough if they've told somebody else and it's made its way back to you it's obviously big enough too big for you to just say yeah they'll get over that they're not getting over it they're telling other people they're not getting over it reconciliation has to happen. And whether it's somebody that's done something to you or whether you've done something to somebody else, knowingly or unknowingly, when it becomes known, it's our job to fix it. It's our job to pursue it. Well, what we don't want is a case where we're constantly meeting with people about petty stuff, right? Like, hey, can you meet tomorrow for breakfast? I'm mad at you. You get there for breakfast. Why are you mad at me? You didn't shake my hand yesterday at church. That's what you're mad about? Like, we don't want to, to become so sensitive that we feel like, okay, I got to tell everybody everything they ever do to me, right? Like we're all a work in progress and there are things that we're going to do. And there, I think one group was talking about, there's some things that I've just got to kind of get over, right? Like I can't hold grudges and I can't get bitter. And there's some things that I just have to work through and excuse. 
But I think the, the dividing line between when do I not need to go to somebody and when do I need to, it's those things where you know this is just going to continue to build, right? Like you didn't shake my hand on Sunday. And then the next thing just kind of gets piled on top of that. The next thing gets piled on top of that. And you're having a conversation about so-and-so and somebody's kind of expressing something and you're like, you know, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. That guy didn't shake my hand one Sunday morning and, and then didn't do this for me and then didn't do this for me. When it becomes something that you're not gonna be able to let go, that's the indicator that, uh, can we meet for breakfast in the morning? Like, hey, I know this sounds pity uh, or silly, but um, for whatever reason, I'm real sensitive to the fact that you didn't shake my hand yesterday at church. And I know that if I don't confess this to you and, and talk this through with you, it's just going to continue to build and I'm just going to continue to get more frustrated with you. That's kind of the dividing line between when do I just let it go? Like, eh, it's not a big deal. Versus, hey, I know this is going to be a big deal because in, 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 in a year from now, I'm going to be able to remember the exact Sunday when that happened. Okay? It's our job to pursue reconciliation. Proper attitudes to have. And we'll start going fast here. Proper attitudes to have. They're needed to bring full uh, restoration. And I think we see this in Jacob and Esau. Um, First, humility. Jacob demonstrates a contrite heart by not justifying his actions. This is big in reconciliation. When you're trying to fix something, and certainly when you're the one that's at fault, the last thing the other party wants to hear is why you did it. Right? Jacob doesn't come justifying why he stole the birthright. He comes to make things right. He comes in humility. He comes admitting wrong, right? He comes as a subservient to Esau. Even though the prophecy is that Esau bows to Jacob, Jacob comes bowing to Esau. He comes with a contrite heart. Humility is absolutely necessary for reconciliation to happen. Repentance is absolutely necessary if reconciliation is gonna happen. Jacob demonstrates the fruit of his contrite heart through his gift, the fact that he's wanting to appease Esau shows this, 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 uh, this attitude of repentance, right? He's not coming and making excuses and justifying. He's not coming with es- expecting Esau to confess where he was wrong in the whole situation. He comes wanting to appease Esau. He comes in humility. He comes demonstrating repentance. And ultimately, repentance is the goal of all reconciliation, Unless it's something petty, typically sin has occurred and sin needs to be confessed and sin needs to be turned from. Luke chapter 17, uh, verse three and four. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There has to be some type of appropriate action to clear the guilt. There has to be some type of fruit that shows repentance for there really to be reconciliation. And then forgiveness happens. Esau was prepared to forgive, and we're called to be people that are ready to forgive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This is supposed to be characteristic of us as believers. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Going back to what we said at the beginning, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness without repentance can be dangerous. 
And here's what I mean by that, because I, I heard some groups talking about what, what does he mean by that? I think if we're not careful, we take the easy route and say, okay, so-and-so's done something to me. They may be aware of it or they may not be aware of it, but I'm going to work towards trying to forgive them and ultimately uh, try to move past it and treat it as though it didn't happen and may not continue to happen. And I think what we do is we rob them of their need to potentially repent of a sin that you need to rebuke them for. Because Jesus says, you've got to rebuke them for it as a tool in their sanctification. And if I just try to forgive them and work through it and restore fellowship with it, then the rebuking stops and the sin gets tolerated, right? So, so to give you a real life example, um, when, when my dad left my mom, our conversations focused heavily on him repenting so that our family could be restored. And we got together constantly and got together and talked. And I called him to repentance and called him to repentance and called him to repentance. And there was no repentance. There was never a connection that I have hurt people and I need to fix it. His mentality was hopefully time will heal all wounds and we can just move past this. And, and he got married and, and we tried to spend some time with him. And what I realized is I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with you not repenting of the fact that you devastated our family. And I'm not okay with moving forward like it didn't happen. And I'm not okay with moving forward without your repentance about it. And so I continue to pray for his repentance. And if my dad ever wants to get together and talk, we will talk about his repentance because I'm not okay with forgiving him. And I'm not bitter towards my dad. It doesn't shape my days. And I think that's what bitterness would look like. So I'm not bitter towards my dad. I continue to call him to repentance and he won't meet with me anymore to talk about it. And so I appeal to God to, to see my dad repent. And my accountability group holds me accountable to doing that because I don't do it near enough but I'm not okay with just getting together with my dad and fellowshipping with my dad and him believing that everything's okay now. And we bypass the repentance part. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. There's to be repentance because Jesus says you rebuke, you rebuke them and you forgive them when there's repentance. When there's repentance. And until the repentance happens, you keep working towards it. You keep working towards it. Now again, you're not called to bitterness. So I'm not saying you withhold forgiveness and you, and you grow sour and bitter. And I'm just saying you don't consider the situation closed. You don't consider it done and we've moved past it until there's been genuine repentance. Because if I move past it with you, then I'm, I'm not doing you the favor of calling you to what Christ has told me to call you to. Number four, God can bring restoration to the worst situations. This is something to definitely keep in mind. No conflict is impossible for him. And I'd venture to say if we all sat here and thought about it long enough, we would all figure out that there's probably some unresolved conflict in our life. And some of us would have different degrees as to how serious that is. It doesn't get much worse than Jacob and Esau where one brother's trying to kill the other and God restores them. And these two guys are at, Jacob's, or at Isaac's funeral together in peace. God can restore any situation. All right. Yeah, I'm going to stop right there. We'll come back to this. We, we can stop right there, still hit the application, and uh, we'll pick up with four and five next week. Let me skip to the application.
We should pursue reconciliation with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us, realizing that restoration gives increased opportunity for praise to God. We should pursue reconciliation with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us, realizing that restoration gives increased opportunity for praise to God. And please, please, please don't just write this down or just stare at it and then leave today and not really consider the implications of it. I need you to really think through if there are people that you need to pursue reconciliation with. Some of you may need to pursue reconciliation with people in this room. Some of you may need to pursue reconciliation with me. I'm not aware of any cases. So until somebody comes and tells me, I don't know to come meet with you. So I'm operating out of faith that that I don't have anybody that I need to make reconciliation with in this room. But that may not be true. There may be somebody that has fault with me. There may be something that I've done. Maybe I didn't shake your hand last week and that's really important to you. But it's not okay to just dismiss it and think that I'm not going to say, keep making the same mistakes because the other, the other part is that you need to rebuke me so that I stop doing it to you and maybe to somebody else. But I want us to think through seriously, is there anybody that I need to pursue reconciliation with? Not, is there anybody that needs to pursue reconciliation with me? But for you to honestly say, if I'm supposed to initiate in every situation, whether I'm the one that's been at fault or whether they're at fault, is there anybody that I need to pursue reconciliation with? And to start taking steps this week. Maybe it's not getting together to meet with them. Maybe it's you praying that God will get you ready to meet with them. But to really self-examine and say, is there anybody that I need to reconcile with? Is there anybody that I have not done what I need to do for reconciliation to happen? And if that's the case, then I encourage you to pursue it. I mean, it's real-life application here. Jacob marched to Esau to reconcile. And then we're going to see him settle down and get on with his life. But to do that, he had to get things right with Esau. For you to get where you need to be in your spiritual life, it means reconciling with those cases that you know about. I'd encourage you to do that this week. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for the relationship that we enjoy with you. God, help us to realize that the worst, absolute worst situation possible where reconciliation seemed the farthest thing possible, that situation existed between us and you. We were sinful and rebellious. We were enemies of you. We were given over to our passions and our desires, worshiping the creation rather than the the creator. We were so far gone. And yet in your love, you sent Christ to make reconciliation possible. So God, help us to realize that there's not any relationship impossible for you to bring about reconciliation in because you've already achieved the impossible. So God, I pray that we would move forward with confidence knowing that you have called us to be people who forgive and pursue reconciliation, people who are humble enough to accept that others may have faults against them that need to be worked through. You've called us to be humble enough to go and to share with others when, when they've performed faults. God, I pray that we'd be people that, that are embracing the call, the, the ministry of reconciliation, but that we wouldn't just be people that proclaim the gospel message. We'd be people that are living that message in our own relationships with others. 
that our coworkers and our family members would see us as people who forgive and pursue reconciliation. God, help us not to be uh, lazy and, and just simply try to dismiss stuff and keep it in and hold it to ourselves and hope that that just gets worked out on its own. God, you get glory. You get glory and praise when two people can come back together and faults can be confessed and forgiveness can happen. So God, help us not to rob you of that glory by, by avoiding situations that we know we need to initiate. God, I pray that you would bring reconciliation in areas that um, there hasn't been before today. God, I pray that if there's people in here that need to reconcile, that that would happen. God, I pray for those that don't even know they need to reconcile with people, that you would prepare them to be reconciled if someone comes to them. God, I pray that there would be a lot of humility and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of reconciliation where needed. And if not, Father, we praise you that, that you have created a, a, an environment of harmony and unity where that's not a need. But God, I know for me that there, there are things that I need to, to pursue um, outside this church. And so God, I would venture to say that we all probably have something that we need to initiate this week. And so God, I pray that you'd bring that to our attention, help us to pursue that, um, to reconcile where we need to reconcile. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.